The book of Proverbs. Um, I'm, if you look on your schedule, obviously I think this is Tom's Saturday. Uh, to t- or it's not Saturday, it's Thursday. This is Tom's day to, to teach. Um, but with all that's going on with um, uh, Anne's mom, Betsy, uh, passing away and going home to her Savior, um, the elders are just giving Tom a little bit more time. His sabbatical turned out to be nothing of what he thought. Um, but it was perfect timing, they would say, because uh, they were able to just give 100% of their time to Betsy, and um, they really helped her cross the finish line well. Um, and so it is a privilege to step in for him. However, you're not going to get whatever it is that he wanted to bring to you. You get uh, plan A. There is no plan B. I almost said plan B. Uh, this is what God wanted all along, I guess. So... Uh, what I want to do this morning is talk to you about, uh, give you four questions for my heart from Proverbs. What this lesson does, it kind of takes your, uh, you remember at the beginning of the year you had your uh, brochure, and even if you have that, I don't know if you want to pull it out and you can just kind of lay it out in front of you, you can do that. We, we'll be talking about different parts of that at, at, um, in, in later on here. But um, what this does is it, this shows you from the book of Proverbs how... Um, even Proverbs anticipated and knew about a mixed condition. And Proverbs is um, really helpful uh, for you to think about how to care for your heart well, how to watch over your heart. Obviously, Wellspring in our Proverbs 4.23 um, theme verse, um, to guard your heart or watch over your heart, um, is, is what we're called to do. And so we're just going to kind of revisit that whole idea again of, of your heart. What is your heart as a believer? What does God's word call for you to do with your heart? Um, and so we're going to start off here at the beginning here with just some the, the foundational truth. You know this. I'm only here to reinforce this for you. Um, but the foundational truth underneath all of this is that the Lord sees everything about my heart. And remember, your heart is not a piece of you, right? According to scripture, the way that we might talk about it or the world might talk about their heart, that, that they'll talk about it as if it's a piece of them, a portion of them. Um, but in Scripture, your heart is you. But it's who you are inwardly before God. Um, and so the Lord sees everything about my heart. He sees everything about who I am inwardly before him. And he sees everything about you. Let's look at Proverbs 5.21. I, I tried to put them on the sheet, but you're welcome to turn to those passages as well. In fact, I would ask you to do that on Proverbs 5 for a moment, just so that we can see the verse before it. Proverbs 5.21 says, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Um, if you look right above that in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 20, um, he's asking his son the question, why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Why would you want to do that? Um, as he exhorts his son, the explanation is given in verse 21, because the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. Why would you do this when you know that the Lord sees your ways? He watches all of your paths. Um, so God is present before every way or every path that you take, right? Um, the ways of a man, the, the path that he takes, the decisions, the results of the decisions he makes, the consequences of his decision, his actions are before the ways 
eyes of the Lord, and he watches all of the paths. There's, there's no way ever to detour God off of your path or your way that you're taking. Um, wherever, uh, if I let my heart lead me, or if I control my heart or direct my heart, whatever way I'm on, there is God. Um, he is there. Um, Proverbs 15, verses 3 and 11. Expand on this. For the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. We'll just start with that one. Um, now let's read verse 11 as well. I put them together. Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. Now um, I'll tell you first about Sheol and Abaddon. Sheol is... Uh, the abode of the dead in the Old Testament. It, it's, it's a way of referring to the next life after the grave. Um, it's a very neutral term, and its context determines which way it goes. Uh, it, it might, you might hear about a righteous person going to Sheol. It's just they've died, and they have now moved um, into the grave. Um, it might have reference to an unrighteous person, in and of itself, it does not necessarily mean hell. Um, it might in certain contexts. Now, Abaddon, for sure, is destruction. It is the place of destruction. It is not a neutral term dependent on its context. Um, and so, let's look at verse 11 again. Sheol and Abaddon are, lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. Um, I think when I, when I think about verses 3 and 11 here, I think about how unlike the Lord we are, that I am. He can see things that I can't see, that you can't see. Um, my eyes can only see what is right in front of me right now in this room, just like your eyes can only see what is right in front of you right now. But God, in one sense, we could say is, is, it's like he is all I. He sees everywhere, even into the next life. He sees into Sheol. He sees into Abaddon. Um, There is no place that his eye has not reached already. And we can trust that God saw the evil. Um, He he saw the evil that that I've done. He's seen the evil that has been done to me. Verse 3, he's also seen the good. He's seen the good that I've done. He's seen the good that has been done to me. There's nothing that has happened under the sun that God has not seen. Um, Just think about how penetrating his eyes are. We could never see into the grave. The only reason we know what happens after this life is because God told us. Not because we looked with an eye and saw it. By the way, nobody has seen heaven and come back, except for Paul. But but not n- nobody's seen heaven. Um, and his point in verse eleven is how much more so can God see into our inner man, our inner your inner woman, right? Um, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before Yahweh. How much more do the hearts of men lie open to Him? Um, let's look at Proverbs seventeen three. The refining pot is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Um, you know that this refining process was to get the heat so hot that 
the silver or the gold, whatever impurities were in it would bubble to the top and that's called dross. And then you can, with a tool, you can skim off that dross. And the point of refining and the point of uh, taking a, a piece of metal, it might've been in a form that you really liked, but you noticed that there were impurities in it. And so you put it in intense heat and you completely changed it. It, it was no longer its shape, but the point was not to destroy it. The point was to make it better. It's a refining process that is not to destroy. It's a refining process to purify and to make it even more valuable. And God likens his testing of the heart in that way. Whenever you and I go through any kind of refinement and, and the heat is put on in our lives, whether it's through trial or it's, a, it's discipline from the Lord or whatever it is, um, the point is never to destroy you. It is always to refine you. Trials have that effect upon our lives. And uh, what the Lord is doing is he is testing hearts, not to find out what might be in it. He knows what's in it. The point of refining is to purify what he already sees. So he tests hearts in that sense. Proverbs 24, 11 and 12 is an interesting um, passage. We won't talk about... Um, the bigger implications of what's going on there, but we're going to kind of focus in on what he says about the hearts there. Verse 11 of Proverbs 24, deliver those who are being taken away to death and deliver those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this. Here's what we want to focus in, in on. Does he not consider it who weighs the hearts and does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? Um, you see, God is weighing the heart. Um, he sees the heart. He sees into the grave. He sees into the heart. He, he tests the heart. He has taken your inner person, who you are inwardly before him. He's put it in his scales and he's weighing who you are and who I am. He knows he ponders our hearts. He knows with clarity what it is that we are there. And he renders to us what we've done. He renders to each man according to his work. Um, these are foundational truths underneath what we're going to talk about in regards to our heart, that God knows everything already. Um, and for the believer, God is refining the heart, testing the heart, weighing the heart, uh, not to belittle the heart, but to make it stronger, to make our inner person, who we are before him, even stronger, even more pure, even more obedient. So now with that in mind, with that wise assessment of the heart that God has, I, I have four questions for you to consider this morning. Um, and here's your first one. Do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment of my heart? So the blank to fill in there is God's possessive. Do I value God's assessment of my heart more than I value my own assessment of my heart? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. There's a lot of talk that you'll hear Christians say about their heart and what they believe is going on in their hearts. Uh, many times believers will make an appeal to what they think is going on in their hearts. They've assessed their heart and they're telling you uh, what they've come to a conclusion on. And um, Proverbs will help you very much so in that whole arena about whose assessment of your heart should you pay attention to. Let's go to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. These are, listen, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. These are like verses you memorize when you're a kid. And I'm telling you, 
uh, a lot of years later, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 just keep coming back to be really precious truths in my own life. Um, there is so much here in these verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. It's a very inward focusing verse, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, with your inner person, who you are inwardly before God. Trust and gather it all up and cast yourself on him, right? And do not lean on your own understanding. That's an, that's an inward statement. Again, my understanding is you can't see it, it's, but it's in me. And I am not to lean on that, rely on that, depend on that. Now, verse 6 is very outward. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do you see the focus to the outside? So here's the positive command concerning your inner man. Um, Gather up all you are inwardly before God and trust in Yahweh. Um, Here's the clear negative command concerning your inner man as well as a believer. Do not lean on your own understanding. That's another way of saying don't lean on your heart. Don't lean on your own mind. Then as you move outward from yourself, inwardly to the paths or the ways of life that you've chosen from that inward place, you are even then still to acknowledge God. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. So what's interesting here is whether you're talking about you inwardly or whether you're talking about what you've done outwardly in your path of life that you've been on, you are not to be your focus. In your heart of hearts, who you are inwardly, cast yourself on God. Don't lean on your own understanding. Turn away even from yourself inwardly, so to speak. Don't put your trust, your confidence there. And then once you've made decisions and you're walking through life, even still acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your path straight. So Solomon here intends to make it clear that for the Old Testament believer, there should always be this kind of looking away from yourself to God, right? Look away from yourself to God, even at the heart level. So be very careful um, of your own assessment of what you believe is going on inwardly because you are not to lean on your own understanding. You are to take everything that you are inwardly and cast it on God. Trust in him. Trust God's assessment of what he sees there. Um, And here's what's absolutely precious. Let's turn, just keep your hand in Proverbs, but go to... Hebrews chapter 4, let's remind ourselves once again what God has given to us to um, help us with this assessment of our hearts. Do you remember? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, what has he given to us? He's given to us his word. The word of God is living. The word of God is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. I don't know how to divide soul and spirit. Don't worry, the word does. It can, it can discern that minutely. Of both joints and marrow and able, it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Um, your assessment of your heart needs to rely greatly on the word of God, right? Um, one of the things that um, 
in fact, one of the reasons why I even put this lesson together a, a couple of years ago is in, in interacting with some Christians who made some statements about their hearts like, um, oh, I, I know that my motive was pure in that. Um, I know my heart. I have a new heart. So my, my decision making in that really shouldn't be questioned because I'm, I'm a Christian and I have a new heart. Um, that just reflects um, an unawareness of the condition of the believer's heart, even in this life. Um, here's, sometimes believers look at their hearts and treat it, their inward person. Again, what you have to do is you have to constantly tell yourself over and over what the heart is and what it's not. It's who you are inwardly. It's not a piece of you. It's you inwardly right now as you are before God. Okay? Some believers treat the heart as if it is their something like their declared righteousness. Okay? That, that's something that God does in your life on the basis of faith alone, right? God declares you to be right with him with the righteousness that pleases him. It's his righteousness. That's the only righteousness he's interested in. So he declares that over you, like hangs a plaque over you and says, you are righteous in my sight. I know you didn't do anything righteous. I know you didn't contribute to this righteousness. You can't take away from this righteousness. It's my righteousness. I give it to you on the basis of faith. Now, is that declared status of righteousness that you have, is that declared status mixed with any impurities at all? No. It's his righteousness. He declared it over you, even though you never were righteous, and even though right now you still do some unrighteousnesses. Okay? If you view your heart, you have a new heart. If you view it like that, then you're pure. And there's nothing to see here in any decision you make because it's only pure. Do you understand the, the simile? That is not in Scripture. <laughs> I give it to you as an, as an example of what it isn't. Your heart is who you are inwardly. It's your, it's your ways of living and thinking inwardly. And that is mixed. So two things are true in Scripture at the same time. One does not erase the other. One does not trump the other. You have right now a status of righteousness that cannot be improved upon and it cannot be diminished by anything you do. That is true. And then there is you inwardly that must be improved upon and that can be diminished through disobedience. Okay, those two things are true at the same time. Now, uh, if you're thinking in your charts, go to the heavenly man, right? You're thinking of me when I die, when I cross the threshold and God carries me across into the next life with him. Your declared righteousness and your inward person now are what? The same. You finally get to be, there's no more space between your declared status and the way you are inwardly. The whole, this whole life is called sanctification. You're trying to close the gap between who you are inwardly and your status of righteousness. You're trying and you never get there and it slips and you just keep fighting this fight of progressive sanctification. When you die, inner man is separated from the body and boom, you're righteous. You have finally been made righteous with the declared righteousness that God gave you on the basis of faith. But your heart right now, who you are inwardly, is not pure. Oh, it's new. Is it better than what you were inwardly when you didn't have Jesus? 
It is much, much better, right? Because all you could be inwardly then was this unmixed rebel who hated God. Now you're in this mixed fight. And then when you go to heaven, you'll be in a new unmixed condition, which is glorious. You'll never have to fight anymore. Okay? But right now, the heart you have is not like your declared righteous status. And so you must be careful. So you trust in Yahweh with all that heart. And you don't lean on your own understanding. Why? Is there something wrong with your status of righteousness? No, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the condition of your heart and your mind as a believer. Okay? Let's look at the next one. The next verse down there, Proverbs 21.2. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the hearts. Do you see that? Proverbs 21.2. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the hearts. Proverbs 16.2 is similar. You can write it down. It says it just a little bit differently. Listen to Proverbs 16.2. All the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but Yahweh weighs the motives. So he's weighing the heart, which means he's weighing the motives. Okay? And you know the first part of that verse to be so true, don't you? I mean, um, every man's way is right in his own eyes. There are sometimes it just feels absolutely impossible that I could be wrong. Welcome to marriage. Put one other knucklehead like that together with you, and I mean, it's fireworks, right? Um, It seems just absolutely impossible that your path that you're choosing is somehow not the right path. Every, Every way seems right in my own eyes. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. I can talk myself into anything which tells us that we are far too easily impressed at times with our own ability to choose what is right and do what is right. And notice in the first part of verse t- uh, uh, chapter 21, verse 2, every man's way is right in his own eyes. That's like saying his path. What, what are we looking at? We're looking at the actions and the deeds that we've done and the choices that we've made. Now look at the last half of the verse. What's Yahweh looking at? Oh. He's weighing, he's weighing the heart. Or like in Proverbs 16 too, he's weighing the motive. Uh, so we're looking at the externals. God's looking at or he's weighing the inside. We're looking at choices. We're looking at the results of choices. We're looking at actions. God sees those too because he sees every path, right? Remember we saw that? But God is also looking at the inner man, uh, the kind of inner man that we were before and during the choices. And whose sight is more trustworthy? He can see into the grave. How much more can he see into my heart? How easily we become during the day unacquainted with our own hearts. But you can be assured of this, that God never grows unacquainted with your heart, with who you are inwardly. So it's important to value God's assessment over your own. Let's turn to Proverbs 28, 26. This is just going to say it. This is just going to be kind of the blunt truth that we've kind of been building up to. Proverbs 28, 26. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Can you say that to believers? He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But he who walks wisely will be delivered. 
The first thing you need to understand is Proverbs, the first part of Proverbs 28, 26 is not referring to an unbeliever. This is Paul, or Paul, it's not Paul. Don't believe me on that. This is Solomon writing um, wisdom truths for his sons, for his son. And he's saying, if you trust in your heart, that's a foolish thing to do. You're actually a fool if you're going to do that. And that is contrasted with what? What's the contrast? But he who walks wisely will be delivered. So trusting in your own inner man is therefore not walking wisely. It is not wise to walk and live in such a way where you are trusting in your own inner person who you are before God. Okay? We are not talking about trusting in truths that are true about your inner self, that what God has done for you, trust in God's promises and his truths, but you do not trust in who you are inwardly, even as a believer, even in heaven. Nobody is trusting in themselves there, even though they're separated from their sin. You certainly don't trust in who you are inwardly here while we are in a mixed condition. And then what does this proverb imply about the outcome for you if you do trust in your own heart? He who walks wisely will be delivered What's the implication for the first part then? If you're trusting in yourself, there's a trap. You're going to get snared. Don't do that. You won't be delivered. You'll be in need of deliverance. One commentator said this, if any cheat had deceived us a hundred times, we would certainly deserve the character of fools if we trusted in him anymore. Somebody cheated me a hundred times and I'm going to trust him one more time? Call me a fool, right? If we are not sensible that it has been the common practice of our hearts to impose falsehoods on us from our youth up, um, then we are great strangers at home, is what he says. It's an old way of saying um, that's exactly what we do with our own hearts. The way that I've put before me is clean. It's clean in my own eyes. Sure it is. I'm trusting in my heart. And it's lied to me a hundred times. Not because I'm not saved, but because I still have sin. And what is sin's nature? What does sin always do? When the, when the serpent came to Eve, what did the serpent try to do? Deceive. Now let me ask you this. When Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, you find out now that somehow you are with him there I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, I got changed dramatically in that union with Christ at the cross. But do you know what didn't change? Sin. The nature of sin wasn't crucified. So your indwelling sin in you is still just like it was before. It's not your slave master anymore. But it still does the same thing. Listen, sin is not in you with its arm behind like, okay, uncle, I won't, I won't deceive you anymore. You're a Christian. Sin, every time it presents itself to you, deceives you. And me. Even in Christ. Because he died to transform me, but his death did not transform the nature of sin. That doesn't get taken care of and it'll never be transformed. It'll just be obliterated in the lake of fire with the devil. Um, Jeremiah 17.9. Do you remember that verse about the heart? 
Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10, I, Yahweh, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Um, Listen, that's true of the unbeliever, that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And, And it is still true even for us, not in the same way, because we are not slaves to sin, but the heart is a very difficult place to assess. Not because your righteous status before God has been compromised. It has not. It's just because of your condition. You are mixed with sin still. Um, And that's what happens. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. Proverbs 20, verse 9. This kind of lets us bring it all to a conclusion. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Now, you might think that that question is primarily attacking the wrong idea that a sinner could clean himself up and be saved by God. An unbeliever says this. You would, or, or that you would try to say this to an unbeliever. You can't clean yourself up before God. And that'd be very true, but that's not what's being said here. The point is, a wise believer, Old Testament believer, is exhorting other Old Testament believers who can say this. That I am, have cleansed my heart. I am pure from my sin. You cannot claim in any situation in life to have total or complete purity of heart or motive. Um, this, this is where it's really important to, to think carefully and to allow Scripture to lead us on these kinds of thoughts here. Um, the heart, your, who you are inwardly before God, will always have some corruption in it in this life. A time is coming when you won't, but that's at death. Or if Jesus comes back, right? Um, so there's always some corruption still in your heart. That mixed condition that you have in Christ um, needs to take that into account. You need to remember this is what is true for me here. And remember, a mixed condition where there's some kind of corruption in your heart does not mean that on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays there's corruption in your heart, but on Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, and of course Sunday, there is none, right? It's not like on those days, there's, it's not mixed in that sense. And it's not mixed in the sense that every other motive that you have is pure and the other one isn't pure. The point is that you have a corrupted heart. It's saved. It's new. It's a new thing. How is it new? It's not what it was. Before it was totally, your inner person, who you were, was completely engulfed and unmixed in sin. It is a new heart, but it is a corrupted heart. Now, why would God do that? I would have signed up just to skip this whole middle part and just go right to heaven or get the heavenly man. But he desires to draw glory for himself through our fight against the inner corruption that is still in us. And so you're always going to have this corruption infiltrating everything you think Everything you do, everything you plan, every path you take, it's always there. Do not lean on your own understanding. 
Don't trust in your own heart. That's a foolish thing to do. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 4, verses 4 and 5. You can write that down. Paul is really helpful. Paul was being analyzed and judged and weighed in a way by the Corinthian church that was just, it was, it was uncalled for. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, actually in verse 3, he says, to me, it is a very small thing that I'm examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't, I don't even examine myself. Okay, verse 4, why, Paul? Well, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. What is he saying? If I did something or if I had a motive... I'm not aware of what was wrong, but yet I am not by this acquitted. Just because I can't think of whatever it is that maybe I did wrong or had an impure motive, that doesn't mean I'm acquitted. Why would he say that? Because he knows that he's a mixed creature. There'll be times you may not be aware if you did something out of sin or not, but that doesn't acquit you. Paul's very measured and careful in what he says. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Okay. Do you see that? You need to be very careful. Uh, Let's go back to James. Turn to James for a minute. I want you to see that um, how James thinks about and speaks to us about our condition as a mixed condition. I remember that reading through James when I... Yes, probably a, a year or two ago. Um, and I thought, oh my goodness, this describes the mixed condition over and over. Watch this. Look at James chapter 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, stop. You have an inward condition in which you lack wisdom at times. Okay, so there's a mixed condition. I'm not full of all wisdom. I wish I was, but sometimes I lack wisdom. How about verse 8? Um, That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is the the believer who won't ask in faith. You and I can be double-minded sometimes. Unstable in all his ways. Again, what you have to be careful of is to not put yourself in a position that every time you see some statement like that, that you automatically go, that's just describing an unbeliever. Because you're going to find yourself in a passage then, jumping back and forth. Wait, is he talking about a believer or is it an unbeliever? I... So who gets to say when it is? Look at your context carefully. How about uh, James chapter 1, verse 26? If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. Wait a minute, what? I can deceive my own heart? This man's religion is worthless. Um, There is the ability to still deceive your own inner self before God. Chapter 2, verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Who is the yourselves you're talking about? He's talking to the, the believers. My brethren. The New Testament writers don't throw that word around carelessly. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. There's a mixed condition. You have faith in Jesus and you're having personal favoritism. This, this is not a good thing. It's a mixed condition. Um, Chapter 3, verse 9. With this tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. Of course we do. And then with it, we curse men. We have been made in the likeness of God. 
From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out the same opening? But what this mixed condition is, it is planned by God and it is still so, uh, it shouldn't be this way. And so that's why we are fighting to try to close the gap. We never will in this life, but it shouldn't be this way that good and evil would come out of my mouth. So I fight, and I fight, and you fight, and you fight. Um, One more, chapter four, verse three. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Verse one, etc. You ask and do not receive because you ask with what? Wrong motives. See, we, we have wrong motives sometimes. Um, because we are still indwelt by sin. What is different? Our relationship to sin has been fundamentally transformed. It is no longer our slave master, and I am no longer its slave. But it is still present. The penalty of sin, gone. Um, The power of sin as slave master over me, undone. Presence of sin, still there. I'm still influenced by it. When is that separated? from me when I leave this body of death, at death, okay? Now, this is an infinitely better condition than we were in before Christ, but it is still a mixed condition. Who we are inwardly at the heart level is not yet what we will be, though, in heaven. So maybe we can try to summarize this a little bit. Here's the way that I would encourage anybody to, to try to think about this. Strive to hold... And here's the key phrase, an appropriate suspicion um, over your own heart. An appropriate suspicion over your own heart. You need to keep in um, mind two truths at the same time about who you are inwardly before God. One, uh, Paul can say something like he says, and I think it's Romans 15 verse 14, you are full of all goodness. I am sure that you are full of all goodness and you can admonish one another. Notice he doesn't say you are good. He says you are full of all goodness. So God has given you all of the goodness that you need and he has filled it within you to do what you need to do. He does not mean that you are the heavenly man. He means that you have all the goodness you need to be able to admonish one another and and care for one another as a church. That's true. And so you need to be able to have um, awareness of that. But you also need to have awareness that I am still in everything influenced by sin. I just am because I'm not separated from my sin. I can't get up in the morning, go someplace, gather all of the little loose, like herding cat sins over into a pen and locking it up and then go into my day and not be influenced by my sin. It's with me all the time. It's with you all the time, even as a believer, right? So try to uh, strive to hold an appropriate suspicion. Uh, let me give you a couple poles to avoid, okay? The extremes to avoid. Some people will gravitate toward the pull of never, ever, 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 ever being able to find anything good at any time in any motive of anything they've ever done. I'm just, I'm just a wretch and I just, I've never done anything in Christ that's good. I, you know, what that reflects is a, is a very um, heavy awareness of sin and that's good, right? It dominates their view perhaps. Some people gravitate towards the other pole, the other extreme of always, 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 always believing that everything that they've done is because they're in Christ. It's, it's pure and it's good and it's clean. Okay. Neither of those two are appropriate suspicions over the heart. 
there needs to be an appropriate suspicion. Proverbs says these kinds of things. I mean, remember these? Um, Don't lean on your own understanding. Be suspicious of your own understanding, your own way of thinking through things. You need to have an appropriate level of suspicion. Um, Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but God's weighing the heart. Oh, yeah, I know I'm going to be more favorable. Anybody here harder on themselves or more favorable on themselves when when you make a decision and somebody questions it? I mean, I'm ready to defend what I've done. This is, I've thought this through. How can this way not be right? And then they talk a little bit. My wife says a little bit more. I go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm with you. Um, but I don't usually first run to, I'm sure this is wrong. I just find myself in a default mode. I'm sure this is right. How could it not be right? It needs to be a level of suspicion. Don't trust in your heart. It's a foolish thing to do. Nobody can say, I'm, I've cleansed my heart from sin. Now, my status of righteousness has been cleansed. There's nothing there, but that's not my inward self. I have a status hanging over me that is not even in one... My, my inward reality doesn't even match it. Yet, I'm, I'm headed there in sanctification. All right, so stay away from the poles. Just hold an appropriate suspicion. And you probably know already, you're probably already feeling either very oppressed by this, what I'm saying this morning, or... Um, Maybe just really affirming, that's right. There's nothing that we ever do that just is right that comes out. There's sin everywhere in us. Even You probably know which way you are. Try to probably look for an appropriate suspicion to hold over yourself and over others. Watch how you um, counsel your kids and your husbands and your friends around you. Uh, watch carefully for whether or not you impugn every motive of theirs as evil first as a believer or whether or not you think that maybe they thought things through well, and yeah, that was that was God-honoring choice to make. Uh, just have an appropriate suspicion. Um, the problem that we have faced as with as elders is when you go to confront somebody about something they did, and they say, "There's nothing to see here because I have a new heart. It's all of my motives are pure." Now that's a problem. Okay. Most people don't operate there, and if they do operate there, most of the time it's out of just unawareness of what the condition of the heart is. And so it just takes a little bit of instruction and saying, no, look at these verses. Um, Some people are there because they want to be there because it's the place where you can't touch me. And that's a scary place to be. Number two, was that just number one? (laughs) The rest of it goes really fast, I promise. I am more inclined, uh, here's the question, am I more inclined to carefully control my heart or blindly follow my heart? Am I more inclined to carefully control my heart um, or blindly follow my heart? Notice these commands, I'll just read through them here, and I've got a, unfortunately, I've got a, a spelling error in the second one for you, I'll have to have you correct it. Make your ear attentive to wisdom, this is Proverbs 2, two. you see it there, incline your heart to understanding. It's it's a command. You are supposed to do this to your inner man. Figure that out. Okay, I, that's wait, that is me. So I'm supposed to do that to me? Yeah, you do that to you inwardly. Incline your heart to understanding. Next one, do not let loving kind uh, do do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, not tables of your heart. Tablet. The S is right next to the T. I just missed it. I was that close. I had a pure motive in trying to get there. <laughs> You say, no, you didn't. <laughs> yes, I did. 
Uh, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You're supposed to take control over your heart and do something for it. Take these commands, take these truths, and put them on your heart. Next one. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. You can tell that to your son, to your daughter, to your husband, to yourself. Don't desire in the heart the beauty of somebody else who is not my wife or my spouse. I'm supposed to do something. I'm supposed to take control of this heart. Proverbs 7, 3, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Uh, Proverbs 7, 25, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Control your heart. Um, Proverbs 23, 17, do not let your heart envy sinners. See, these are commands that the believer is supposed to be able to do. And this one's probably the best and the, and the clearest. Listen, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way that we call that shepherding your heart. Lead your heart. Lead who you are inwardly. Why do you even need to do that? Is there anybody in heaven who needs to lead their inward self? Not now, because it's, it, there's nothing to lead anymore. It's, its status matches its declared status. But now in this mixed condition, you need to shepherd your heart. You need to direct your heart in the way. Give me your heart, my son. And the last one, do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, your enemy. Okay? So Solomon's clear expectation for his son is that his son would be in control of his heart and shepherd it. Positively, there are some things you're supposed to do. And negatively, there are some things you're supposed to keep your heart from doing. And that implies that the believer's heart is wayward and needs to be controlled. Does it not? If it's, if it's fine, if it's, if it's perfect and pure, why on earth are there these commands? Nothing to see here, God. Why did you even write that for me? There is something to see. Proverbs 4.23, right? Our verse. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? Because from it flow the springs of life. It, you are in a mixed condition that needs to be watched carefully. Right? Your declared status of righteousness over you that's on the basis of faith alone does not need to be watched over carefully by you because it is fixed, it's secure. You don't have to do it. You don't have to worry about it. It's not going to change. It's not going to get better. It's not going to get worse. You can't diminish it. But you got to watch over your heart or different things. Is this clear? I keep trying to say the same thing, but I, I want it to, to press home here. Uh, could I encourage you, especially as women and with your, your daughters, and especially just the way that, that young women think, uh, don't have a Disney princess view of life, which you're told in every one of those movies to follow your heart. Do not blindly follow your heart. It will only get you in trouble. It will only get you in trouble. You are not less of a person if you don't follow every dream of your heart. You're probably wiser if you don't follow every dream of your heart. Okay. See, we need to be more influenced by what Scripture says about us than what Disney says about us or anybody else, right? Psychologists or anybody. Scripture has a very different view of your heart than Walt does, okay? Number three, do I know in what ways my heart is vulnerable? Do I know in what ways my heart is vulnerable? Um, look at Proverbs 22, verse 15. You see it there? Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. There is built into the human heart an inclination to foolishness. In fact, it's bound up in the heart. I mean, it's like in there. It's in a knot. How are you going to get that foolishness out of their inner person? 
Well, that's when you, you get to do discipline as a believing mom and dad with your child, right? Something foolish is going to naturally come out of the heart until and unless something supernaturally occurs in the heart, right? Salvation and progressive sanctification. Do you know the ways in which your heart is vulnerable to this foolishness? Uh, We're vulnerable because of indwelling sin still within us. There's nobody in heaven right now who is vulnerable in their inner man. They're invincible, but we're vulnerable here. Look at Proverbs 12, 25. It's the next one down. Anxiety and a man's heart weighs it down. It should say weighs, not weights it down. But a good word makes it glad. So anxiety, worry, fretting in a man's inner self weighs it down. You see the impact of the sin of anxiety that it can have on a heart? It sinks like a stone under the weight of that sin. And one commentator said this, it sinks to depths of despair where your heart can no longer apprehend gospel comforts. Have you ever been there where you were so inwardly weighed down by anxiousness or something worry and somebody's trying to encourage you and it's just like Teflon coming right off your forehead. It just, you can't be comforted. You ever been there? Anxiety is, 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 is uh, devastating to the heart. It's hard to be able to be thankful when you're anxious like that too. But, but here's the good news. Do you see it? But a good word makes the heart glad. I mean, how, that, look how easily the heart can be in a different direction. It, it just takes good news, a good word, right? Here's the next one, Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desired fulfilled is a tree of light. What impact does deferred hope have on your heart? Um, we need to be careful about what people and what pursuits and what promises we put our hope in. Because you put your hope in getting that new house and then you, it's not closing or it's not available and that hope is now evaporated, it's deferred, it's pushed off uh, or whatever you might be putting your hope in and all of a sudden you find yourself really weighed down by that. My heart is sick. My inner person feels sick because if those things fall through, our hearts are affected. And I think even there's probably something in here for parenting. Sometimes it's easy when, when, when kids go, Oh dad, can we go do blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. Okay, great. And then you never do it. What you're doing is you're, you're, you're deferring the hope that a child had because you maybe just tried to say, yeah, yeah. Just to get them maybe out of your hair. Not helpful for a child. Because it's hope deferred and hope that is deferred uh, always has an impact on the heart. Some people are a little bit more differently than others. Some will be impacted by it more. Some will just be crushed by it. Others maybe not as phased by it. But hope deferred makes the heart sick in general. But here again is the good news. But desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And we know that to be true. I mean, when, you, when, when the desire of your heart does come true, and it, man, that's like life, right? That's what he's saying. It's a tree of life. Um, here's another one. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. Now, there are certainly times that the heart can be made sad for legitimate biblical reasons like sorrow over sin, right? Um, But it can also be made sad, even broken because of just weakness in the inner man and an immaturity to be able to handle trials or stress or whatever. Do you know what makes your heart sad? Do you know? Do you know yourself well enough to what makes your heart sad? What your heart is vulnerable to? Do you know what 
makes you feel broken within. Um, it's important to measure your inner self this way because your heart is vulnerable. Again, in heaven, your heart will not be vulnerable. But today it's vulnerable. Lastly, number four, when I'm in trouble, do I ever back up and consider my heart? When I'm in trouble, do I ever back up and consider my heart? Proverbs eighteen twelve. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty or prideful or arrogant, but humility goes before honor. So imagine you come up on a scene and there's wreckage everywhere in a life. Um, you're looking at this wreckage. There's, there's spiritually undone. Uh, maybe a marriage is becoming undone. Relationships are undone spiritually. That is an opportunity right there at that point of destruction to say, you know what, maybe we should back up and see what came before the destruction. It's an opportunity to say, um, let's back up and think about what comes before. Because possibly, like what this verse says, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. That's a possibility. Um, one commentator said, proud men are always standing on the edge of a fearful precipice from whence they will soon tumble into destruction. Uh, let's take another one here. Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen. We could say it another way. How blessed is the man who fears always. And by the way, how on earth could that be true in Proverbs? What, is, what, what does fearing always, what, what must it mean in the context of the book of Proverbs? Fearing God, fearing Yahweh, fearing the Lord. So blessed is the one who fears Yahweh always. By Proverbs chapter 28, he doesn't need to say Yahweh again. It's, it's understood but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So you come upon a life and there's the presence of calamity, or maybe it's even your own life. Find yourself in a calamitous situation. That's an opportunity to say, hey, wait a minute. What, what was going on before this? And it gives you an opportunity to evaluate the hardness or the softness of our hearts. What was the condition of my heart prior to this mess? But you have to remember you have to have a category for this. Remember Job. Job had horrible calamity and destruction in his life. And did he sin before so? He wasn't arrogant. He wasn't prideful. And he did not have a hard heart. Proverbs, or the first couple chapters of Job, labor hard to say Job did not sin and cause this. He was a righteous man. And it happened to him because there was something going on in the heavenly places between God and and Satan that Job didn't know and it never comes out throughout the whole thing. And Job's friends were lousy comforters because they only had a category that it's, it's this trigger mechanism life. You sin, calamity comes. So if I see calamity, it means only one thing, you sinned. You must have been arrogant, you must have had hardness of heart. It is possible in this life under a sun that a life can be in calamity, but there wasn't arrogance, there wasn't um, hardness of heart, it's just the way life is in this world until it is made right by Jesus, right? So you have to hold on to that and remember, but you do need to be thinking that there is the possibility in my own life that perhaps pride got me here into this mess, or maybe I had hardness of heart and I didn't even know it. Um, and so you might be dealing with somebody. So don't automatically get there, right? Immediately with, with somebody. Um, this idea of hardening your heart or having a hard heart, this kind of illustration helps. I think I got it from Thomas Watson, uh, a Puritan. Is your, is your heart 
um, like hard ground where it needs a pickaxe to be swung at it? Or is it so soft you can use like a hand trowel, a hand shovel, and be able to stick out with, you know, just with very little effort? Or is it like a, a knot where it's so tight, it's so hard, you have to actually take an iron hook, a fork out of the, out of the drawer, and dig it in there to try to get it out? Or is it so loose of a knot you can just grab it with your fingers and pull it out? Those are ways to think, and especially in talking with your kids about it. Because look, when, if you've got to get at something and it's in hard soil and you've got a pickaxe and you're swinging away and you're in a conversation with somebody and you're trying, and, or they're trying to have this conversation with you and it just keeps coming and it just keeps coming, you might want to just stop and say, no, wait a minute. What is, what's the condition of my heart? Are they coming after me? Because you'll feel like, what are you coming after me for? That's kind of hard. Right? So the condition of the heart can make it or break it for people who are coming to us. Um, maybe use an illustration and ask them. I, I, I try to spend a lot of time having pre-conversations before I have the conversations with my kids. Uh, I'll, I'll just advertise to them. I want to have a conversation with you about your phone. Okay? Now I'm just going to let you think about that for a little bit. I'm going to come back. And I just want you to know, I want you to prepare your heart. I want to have a conversation with you about your phone. Okay? Um, can I do that? Do you see that you need wisdom still in your life? And I want to help you with that. I don't see your life perfectly. I'm not God, but I've got some pieces of the pie of your life and I want to talk to you about them. And you can trust the Lord with that and I want to be fair and I want to... So I'm giving all kinds of statements before because I want to have a good conversation once it happens. Um, And then I'll give them some time. That doesn't guarantee that it's an easy conversation. It doesn't guarantee the ground is soft. Um, but I find that it actually helps. And sometimes we stop conversations in order to go back and start them over again. Um, hardness of heart. All right, so let's talk about this. I want to have one more kind of like pastoral kind of way for you to be thinking about this. If, if you, let's say you come upon a believing friend's life and she is just absolutely devastated. She's totaled spiritually speaking, and you don't know why. Her life's a mess. Somebody's starting to talk to you. I need to talk to you right now. Here's what happened. And and, I mean, it is just an avalanche of terror that has happened on your friend. What what should you do first? What would you want first? I would want somebody to just come and draw near and just maybe put their arm around me, uh, pray for me, tell me that... I get it. I, I look, my life, this stuff happens in my life too. Um, life, it can just be really hard sometimes. I just want you to know, I, I, I understand, I, I see what you're going through. I may not understand exactly, but I, I've had similar types of things. I'm with you. I want them to know that I'm with them, that I'm alongside them. And all the time in my mind, I'm thinking, let's, let's back this up. I don't know what was going on before, this happened, but I'm just going to let you know first, I'm human like you. I'm a sinner like you. I've been in calamity. I've been in destruction before. And I just want you to know I'm with you. Okay, so start there. Cry with them, care with them, sympathize as one who understands how trouble is commonplace for man under the sun. Secondly, think carefully because the existence of that calamity doesn't automatically mean that the believer was foolish or arrogant or hard-hearted, right? So you don't certainly want to accuse them of something that isn't true because you're aware that, oh, whenever there's calamity, there's pride before it. You know, I think you're prideful. 
I mean, that is not going to go well. And you're going to have to do a lot of work to, to make a friendship better over time. So be careful. Think carefully. Remember Job. 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 <laughs> right? But nevertheless, as a good sister in Christ, gently and carefully in time, help them back up and evaluate themselves. Was there anything going on in your life or in your thinking that maybe led to this? There might be pride there. There might be hardness of heart. I don't know. Turn those kinds of moments or those kinds of situations not into an event, but into a process. You may not be able to do all of that in one meeting. You're going to probably want to because if you're, especially if you're somebody who likes to fix things in people's lives, you're going to want to turn it into an event and solve it all in one four-hour conversation and their eyes were rolling in the back of their heads two hours ago. Uh, so you might have to turn it into a, a process. Okay. All right. So here's the four questions for you today. Do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment of my heart? Number two, am I more inclined to carefully control my heart or blindly follow my heart? Thirdly, do I know in what ways my heart is vulnerable? What makes my heart sink? What helps, what makes me lose sight of God? What makes my heart sick? Fourth, when trouble comes, will I back up and measure the condition of my heart? Did I give that to you? Did I give number four to you? All of a sudden I read that. I'm like, I don't remember saying that. Okay. Do you have any questions? What would you like to ask? What would you like to protest? What do you want to shake a fist at? I'm confused. Confusing elder. Anything that you want to ask? Because Chris would love to answer it. Anything? No. Um, as you chew on the mixed condition and keep chewing on the mixed condition, and if it intersects in ways that are confusing with other thoughts, come, come find me. Come talk with me. Come talk with any of the elders. We'd love to do that. seek anybody out here in Wellspring. Just know that um, we want you to understand rightly who you are inwardly in Christ. There's some, it, it's great news for who we are in Christ. It's not the best news yet. That's in heaven. And so we just need to be careful with our hearts. Proverbs is a great tool to help us with that. So why don't we pray? And we'll let you guys get to your discussion groups. Father in heaven, thank you for these ladies. I pray, Lord, that you would um, help your word to be clear to them. I pray, God, that you would um, just continue to be near to them as they pursue you through your word, that you would help them grow in their sanctification. Lord, that you would help them to grow in their pursuit of you. Lord, we never graduate from this. We are always in need of growing more. Father, help us to long for heaven more. Help us to long for uh, a day when we are set free, as Paul says in Romans 7, from this body of death. Um, this body, this flesh, does not contribute good things to my inner man. It only pulls down and weighs it down. And a day is coming to be freed from that, Lord, and to see you, not just to be freed from sin, but to be freed to see you in all the fullness of who you are, Lord. Make us have hearts that long for you one day, to not be afraid of the fragility of this life, um, the, the vulnerability that exists within. Um, but make us long to be with Jesus, to see him face to face. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.